What's up, everybody? This is your host, Scott Melker, and you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Every week, I'm talking to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, politics, and basically anyone else with an interesting story to tell. So sit down, strap in, and get ready, because we're going deep. Let's go. Today's episode is brought to you by Choice by Kingdom Trust and Voyager. We'll learn more about them later on in the episode. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today's guest is the co-founder of Morgan Creek Digital alongside everyone's favorite Bitcoin maximalist, Pomp, and a good friend of the show who I've had on before, Mark Yusko. Starting as a physician assistant, recognizing a need for change, started his own innovative healthcare company that resulted in a half billion dollar exit. From angel investing to obsessively buying Bitcoin, Jason Williams is the definition of a disruptive innovator and dynamic leader. Jason, man, thank you for being here and welcome to the show. Yeah, it's good to be here, thanks. Even on a holiday, as I said before, even though people won't know that. (laughs) Um, So you've made quite a splash lately, I noticed, uh, with your market buys all over BlockFi on, on Twitter. Uh, with the usual uh, accusations that the money isn't yours and you're faking it and all the things that we get in this space. But what, what's caused you to start dollar cost averaging six figures at a time into, into Bitcoin of late? Well, I, I've been doing it, so I'm not trying to flex. Um, I just hadn't been publishing it. So we've been super bullish on Bitcoin since we got into the space in 2015. You know, I dropped millions of dollars in mining to start. So that was my first kind of um, investment. And that that investment was in a lot of GPU miners because I was mining Ethereum. Um, And so it was just an evolution. My entry was uh, experiencing Ethereum and what you could do with it through mining, got into Bitcoin, and then just started buying and holding it. So, you know, I think I bought my first Bitcoin at like 1200 bucks. Crazy. Yeah, and, and I'm and I've been super bullish. Like the the full position that I have, and I, I've tweeted this. So again, I'm not. I'm just telling you because I, I'm I'm saying these things because I've gotten kind of frustrated with the anonymity around Bitcoin. It's so black box, and nobody wants to talk about anything. And it's like there has to be some people who are saying I've taken a position, like like Paul Tudor Jones did. Yep. It was so important and we get so excited about it, but you know, he's speculating around the periphery. I, I'm, he's a super smart guy, but how deep has he gone into yeah. the, the areas we have? So for me, I'm just saying, look, I put 10% and that's growing of my net worth into this business. You can back into what that means. It's, you know, it's a lot of money. Right. Yeah, no, I understand that. And listen, I mean, <laughs> Pomp's your boy and your partner, and he's openly said that he's 50% in, you know, and, and people think that's nuts. It's funny. Like, I, I can definitely, uh, I, I definitely feel you when you talk about being non-anonymous in this space and, and approaching it, because I've repeatedly said the same thing. I was at 10% very openly, and I actually got, in this space, got criticism for it because it wasn't enough. <laughs> but, yeah, but, uh, but, but you know what? You, ha- you have to be you have to be reasonable there. When Pomp says he's got fifty or ninety percent of his net worth in there, Pomp's thirty two. You know, he's he's had some small exits in business, but Pomp yeah. doesn't have like you know a giant real estate portfolio and and a giant VC portfolio that's twenty years old. And and 
you know, so we're, we're just at different points of our life. I mean, Pomp's 32. I'm 46. Mark's like 57. We all have covered different ground in our partnership. And um, for me, a 10% plus position in Bitcoin alone is, is a big chunk of change. And, you know, when I play it out, that's when I tweeted this morning, like um, holding Bitcoin is like psychologically devastating because you're constantly running like, you know, this is money to me and it's money. I feel comfortable holding. It's hugely volatile and it's probably uh, funny to say that, but you know, you kind of play it out and um, it plays mind tricks with you, you know, because it's so important in terms of where I'm trying to get, which is to become a billionaire. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's interesting. I'm in my forties as well. So I'm 43 years old. So mm-hmm. I think for me with two kids and, and a wife and a family, people can't maybe the, the average of the space is probably millennials or early twenties. And maybe they can't quite uh, get there mentally for what that does mean to take that level of risk when you have like real responsibilities and a real life. So and Scott, like I'm talking about things that people probably, you know, don't think about in this space, wills and trusts oh. and, avoid, and av- avoiding like, you know, uh, a probate. It's just like, yeah. you know, people are like, ah, this may be lame, but it's not. If this thing does what we think it's going to do and you're sitting on millions of dollars, you turn, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars, you better have a plan. You better have a custody solution. You better have, you know, thought about this or you're an idiot. Right. And those are things that uh, don't come with the territory in this space either. Like it's very easy to do that, uh, to write a will for your your stocks and your other portfolios, your real estate. It's all, uh, you know, understood by the government and by the officer who's going to handle it. They still have no idea how to handle crypto, I've found. I mean, I even brought it up to the lawyer and they were like, I don't even know what to do with this. Am I, is it your private keys? What's the value of it at any given moment? It's changing all the time. So that really is something I think that most people don't think about and need to, because it started with me showing, you know, kind of showing my wife what she needed to do in case, but what if we both go, right? So now my dad's got to know, but what if he goes? So, you know, it's like this endless sort of thing. It's it's really, it's really pretty crazy. So Obviously, you've been very successful. Can you talk about where your story began? Because I know it didn't start in crypto, that that money came from elsewhere that you started investing. Yeah. So my background's in healthcare. Uh, I was in uh, PA school back in 1996, graduated in 98, got accepted to Yale uh, in a surgical residency for physician assistants. While I was there, um, started to talk to my professors about a retail play for healthcare. Uh, It was just urgent care but I wanted to put it next to a Starbucks, kind of where people lived in the community and away from the hospital system. And um, this physician, Dr. Flock, who was a general surgeon, uh, really said, Jason, that's a great idea and you should go do that. And, and he really gut checked me in terms of like, if you continue on the path you're on, which is to be like, an okay, moderately, highly compensated middle manager in healthcare, you're going to have a good life. You're going to get the three to five series BMW and a, and a house and probably a membership to a country club. But is it really going to do what you want to do? Because I think you aspire to uh, more than just uh, financial tokens and, and wealth. You wanted to kind of change the world. And, and he, he really uh, 
didn't light a fire inside of me. It was already there, but confirmed that, you know, I wanted to have the options that real wealthy people have to, to make great change in, in their world and in, and in, in fact, other people's lives. So I uh, called my mom, told her I was going to drop out, loaded up my stuff, moved back to North Carolina, headed straight to uh, First Citizens Bank, which was uh, a local bank. I had known these guys when I was in college. I had won some awards that they give. And I, I remember headed to Smithfield, North Carolina, and I met with the, the bank owners and said, look, I, I want to buy a post office in Hope Mills, North Carolina, and start this company, an urgent care that does 80% of what you find in a uh, local emergency room. I'm going to work in there all the shifts. I'm going to work nights to kind of cover the cost of things. And they lent me an enormous amount of money, uh, which was about $400,000. I was able to go to an auction, buy this property, have enough money left over to renovate the, the post office into the first urgent care. And I had about three months operating capital. And uh, I was really fortunate, man. Like I rolled the dice. I was 25 years old. And... Um, and I was able to stay at the table for 25 years uh, at this point, you know, and, um, you know, FastMed was born. It was hard work, but um, through the evolution of 15 years of, of working on that business, I ended up having about 127 locations, grew it to 1,400 employees, uh, 400 PAs and physicians working for me. And I went through kind of the, an evolution of my own kind of learnings of business and how to, money, how to manage money and manage people. Uh, at first, it was just me and my college friends. It grew into a professional board. Then I had venture capital and Blue Cross Blue Shield and, and private equity involved and participated at, on boards that were VC and, and PE led and took it through three exits. Um, the final one in June of 2015, which you spoke about as we opened the show. And, and that was it. That was really my whole life's adult work. Like that was all I did was build FastMed. Yeah. So that was a cool story. And I had to start all over again, terrified in 2015. Like, what am I going to do now? Yeah, you're starting, uh, uh, starting out again from a slightly uh, higher floor. But, so it sounds like for you, it was really a trial by fire. Like every single thing that came along, you just had to learn to do it on the job and, and become good at those things because uh, nobody teaches you how to like uh, manage a board or uh, talk to an insurance company, you know, do all those things. Yeah. And I made wild mistakes along the way. It was really hard. You know, you, you, you run head first into the chasm over and over again. And it's just like building a company uh, startup is like this uh, exercise in testing your own will. And, um, and it's really for those who have the, the like intestinal fortitude to go after it. It's an amazing experience. You know, I felt and still feel like I'm in control of my life in control of my schedule and it's, I've been afforded a great opportunity. A lot of people backed me. I didn't do this myself. Um, and uh, I'm really grateful to those people. Well, you had the naivety and balls at 25 to go after something like that. But like, if you were fresh out and you were 45, do you think that you could, could do it again? Mm. Like that you would, knowing all that you know, maybe that you would even uh, tackle. Yeah. Probably not, you know. Uh, nice not, to be not, young. Yeah, like I was married, but no kids. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it just, mm -hmm. I, I could tolerate like catastrophic failure at that yeah. point. 
you know, you're, you're still in those, in the period of your life that you're a high earner. I still could have practiced medicine. There were ways I could protect myself if I really blew it. You know, at 45, um, I still do startups. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, you know, a suited up CEO. I'm a kind of a rugged smash you with a bat CEO. That's the kind of environments that I work in. Um, but no, I, I don't think I could do it now without assets, without anything with a family and trying to take the wild yeah. risks I did then. No, I don't think so. Well, you said you could, uh, you could have tolerated catastrophic failure. What were your most catastrophic failures along the way? Oh man. Like the, the whole, the whole model breaking when I started, um, when I started FastMed, physician assistants were highly dependent practitioners. And what I mean by highly dependent, dependent practitioners, a PA can't practice on his own. Right. So I had to, I had to hire a physician, convince him to allow me to practice under his license. And then he had to kind of observe my practice, sign off on my charts, be in constant communication with me because I was already stretching the model because he wasn't on site. All right. It was just me. And we had this kind of daily interaction and weekly confirmation of my decision-making. And all along that growth trajectory of FastMed, the medical boards did not like what I was doing. They didn't oh. like I was employing physicians. They didn't like that I was challenging the status quo of healthcare. So they were constantly trying to stop this process. Imagine you are the boss, but you're dependent on the person who you've employed to allow you the opportunity to do what you want to do. It's a really weird environment to operate from. I was a subordinated employee in the structure, but I was the founding CEO of the business. I fired the guy who was allowing me to practice. Wow. Yeah. You don't think about that, but that's very, and, really interesting. And there were times that I hit heads with that person, you know, so he right. could blow, you know, he could stop everything. He could say, yeah. you're not allowed to practice, you know, and I had to play chess in that environment, it was really difficult. Did you have to expand that structure to every one of your locations? And uh, as you, cause yeah, with yeah. one, now you're talking about 140 of these guys. <laughs> that, that's right. So every eight, I had one of those physicians overseeing clinics. And so, you know, eventually I couldn't put myself in this position uh, where I was sub in a subordinated role uh, so I could truly manage these folks. And it, I, you know, I never played the positional power game. I think that's a loser kind of move. If you make decisions that are right for the company, right for your teams, right for the patients, everyone will be on board with that. If someone's not on board with that, they're probably toxic and need to go anyway. Right? So right. once you get yourself in the right position, you've got the right culture and you're working uh, with the right people, it becomes really easy. You don't have to be like, I'm Jason, I'm the CEO. You're just like, I'm Jason, I'm your friend, and we're trying to do the right thing. Right. What aren't you understanding at this point? Yeah, that makes sense. My dad uh, ran the emergency room at the University of Florida for like 20 years. He's an ER physician, and he always commented, I mean, all the problems you're talking about to some degree, I think, you know, uh, any physician in that uh, situation would sort of... Uh, have identified with, but he always used to say that, you know, the ER was sort of like everyone went there for everything. If they didn't, you know, if you didn't have money, that's where you went when you had a headache or that's when you went, when you had a stomach ache and fast med and that kind of model sort of changed that. I think to some degree, 
Um, I personally go to one of those clinics when I have like a small problem with my kids, which is right down the road. I find it to be a much better experience even than going to my primary physician. So if you invented that, I mean, that's really like the, for the customer, I think that that's a epic shift in the paradigm of how sort of first line healthcare, uh, you know, is viewed. Yeah, I appreciate that. And that, that was it. It was founded around that time. Um, my greatest competitors had like three or four clinics. So there were about 8,000 urgent care clinics in the country in 2010. And most right. of them were three or less. So there was no physicians or groups that had three or more. So imagine I started in 2001, you know, so we were like the founders of that whole industry. And we were providing like services with the same outcomes, with great quality and great customer service in a walk-in capacity seven days a week for one-tenth the cost. Yeah, I mean, without, huge without the customers sitting there for nine hours with uh, people that are like dying yep. next to them who can't be yep. seen, which is the uh, normal the emergency, emergency room, room experience. Yep. Um, yep. So I read that like after, I guess, the exit or somewhere along the way that you were effectively blocked out of healthcare. Uh, yeah, so you talk my, about that? Yeah, so um, in 2010, I had my first exit um, and uh, it was it was a large sum of money. I was able to roll a large sum forward and I stayed with the company for five years, but that transaction had a 10 year non-compete, uh, starting. So it was like, um, yeah, 2010 to 2020. Uh, I stayed with them for five years. So I was able to work through that. But after I left in June, 2015, I was blocked out of healthcare, couldn't practice, um, and also uh, couldn't do anything in the space uh, around non-appointment-based medicine. So I had to figure out something else to do. And that was, that was probably another really terrifying moment because on a Thursday, uh, when we sold the company to Abri, we finally got that transaction. And Abri was like, look, you've been a good steward. You've been a, you know, a great founder. We're going to let you have a complete exit if you want. Otherwise, you can stick around and help right. us build. And I, I, I had had enough at that point. So I said, look, I'll disappear for five years and, uh, and do something else. And, um, they gave me a lot of money and that yeah, was funny it. Though, you talk about it was terrifying, but I think that there's that, that kind of speaks to the kind of person you are and your motivation and that you just like to dominate obviously, because a lot of people would have said that's a five-year vacation. I'm yeah. rich. I'm going to the beach it's a wrap, right? So clearly you woke up literally the next day and were like, I need to do something. I mean, where, where do you think you get that sort of drive? I mean, I don't think that that's inherent in most people. Yeah. So the, the, the terrifying part, I'll start with that, then I'll get into your, your question. The terrifying part was that this is really kind of what I wanted to do since I was 16 years old. Like I wanted to work in healthcare. So then right. I just, I've been working on that forever. I build FastMed. It's my my whole life. It's everything I've done as an adult. And then I'm out of it in 2015. The terrifying thing was like, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, now I had been doing some venture investing with, uh, with pop. And so we had this really cool portfolio. I had made a bunch of investments prior to meeting pop. So I was able to look back at that portfolio and say, is there something here that I want to do that is different so uh, I left Fastman on a Thursday and on Monday I was working on my new startup. That's incredible. How'd you meet Pump and uh, Mark? Tell me about how uh, Morgan Creek came together. Yeah. So um, I had this friend that worked for Mark Cuban 
uh, in his uh, in his office, family office, helping due diligence on investing. He told me that there was this really smart guy who had just left Snap, had like a horrible situation go down where he was like only there for two weeks. Uh, before that, he was at um, at Facebook doing really well, working on growth and and uh, different strategies there. But he was moving back to Raleigh, and he thought we'd get along well, so we should meet. And Pomp and I uh, met for a beer in downtown Raleigh. He, uh, his family was living in Raleigh here uh, at that time. Uh, this is early 2015. And uh, we just got along really well. We both wanted to start a venture fund. We were both really interested in, in pre-seed and early stage venture investing. Um, so we, uh, we decided to start Full Tilt Capital together. And, um, and that, that was the beginning of our, our friendship and uh, are investing together. And we've invested in, at, with Full Tilt, about 63 different companies. Wow. We invested about $18 million uh, into those companies. Uh, the, the majority of it is in was in early stage pre-IPO stuff, or late stage pre-IPO stuff, excuse me. Um, and then the balance of the money was in, in a bunch of really cool startups. What we realized while we were doing the, the Full Tilt portfolio was a lot of smart money and a lot of smart people were going into blockchain. And uh, Pomp and I were on our way to Charlotte to buy a, a McDonald's uh, that we were going to convert into a coin laundry mat. And we, we were just going back and forth about mining and Bitcoin and, and, and what, what is a blockchain and, and what's going on in the space. And by the time we, we spent that six hours or so in the car together, you know, I was ready to go. The way that I, I learn is by actively doing things. So Pomp, myself, and JP Barrick started building GPU uh, rigs, sourcing the, uh, the graphics cards, plugging them in, uh, mining, and that, that began the adventure. But that, that's, that's where Pomp and I kind of pivoted into the blockchain space. During 2000. 15, 2016, early 2017, you know, we had been watching Mark uh, Yusko, who is like a really amazing guy in that he's got this, this long-standing uh, experience managing money and dealing with institutions. He had a large uh, amount of infrastructure set up in Chapel Hill with Morgan Creek Capital Management. So he had like 40 full-time employees. And we felt that the alignment of uh, our cultural perspectives between Pomp, Mark, and myself, the fact that Mark had this institutional uh, machine that could interface with them and we could potentially raise money there uh, would, would be a great um, asset for Pomp and I if we wanted to move into investing in blockchain and, and this space. So, you know, cause we were working out of Starbucks. Amazing. Yeah, Mark is the man. He blew my mind. Uh, we, you know, we've kind of gone back and forth a lot on social media and stuff, but when I had him on the show, it was just like a student professor, you know, just getting absolutely schooled by your, by your professor in like a one-on-one -on -one learning session. It's, uh, it's incredible that you get to interface with someone like that, both those guys on a, on a regular basis. So you started the fund. Uh, you guys are, I get. Uh, if last I checked, you're in about ten different coins, right? But primarily, primarily Bitcoin. Is there anything that's on your guys' radar that you're thinking about potentially adding? 
Yeah, like I, I would say, you know, we, we really don't invest in any type of like altcoins. Um, we have the uh, digital asset index fund, which we did with Bitwise, but that really right. was just, that was driven by some of our LPs wanting that exposure. So we worked with Bitwise right. to set that up and, and people, you know, people can just go to that. Um, if they want that type of exposure. The main right. funds that we invest out of, uh, Morgan Creek Blockchain Opportunity Fund 1 and 2, uh, they, they only hold Bitcoin positions and then have, um, they have equity positions in, uh, in businesses in the space. But we, we're not traders of Bitcoin. We hold Bitcoin. Uh, we've, we've DCA'd into our positions. Our first fund uh, was set off to be a $25 million fund. We ended up raising about $41 million, um, and that turned out very well. It's closed at this point. Our second fund, uh, we're trying to raise $200, $250 million, and we've closed about $70 million at this point, uh, and we're, we're closing more capital now. So it's exciting, and I'm, I'm happy to participate in space. So I'm a huge fan of uh, BlockFi. I know that that's uh, one of your... Uh bigger, I'm assuming, I know that you guys invested in them. What, what uh, drew you to them and their model specifically? Yeah. So the, the general thesis that we had was we wanted to try to invest in infrastructure around uh, blockchain and crypto. That, that's what I understand. Like that's what FastMed was. It was literally like looking at primary care or looking at a hospital system and the hospital system emergency department and saying like, look, there's a, there's a gap here. There's some value that we can create if we build an infrastructure layer between the primary care who's open five days a week and, and doesn't really have walk-in services and doesn't really have x-ray and other technologies that could expand the service offering. And then the hospital emergency room has everything you can imagine, but you don't need to go there because it's expensive and it's set up to save people's lives, not diagnose your sinusitis. When right. you take that, that same kind of approach to investing in this space, you find investments like BlockFi to be really interesting, but kind of boring. BlockFi is just a bank. You know, it's offering yeah. banking services, but in the crypto space. And that may be something that, you know, Bitcoin maximalists who want, you know, sovereignty and they want to control their tokens. It's just a non-starter for them. But for others that, you know, want the user experience and, and will take on some of the risk that they have taken. And I would even go further to say more risk putting fiat in, in banks. Just say you yeah. trust your bank. Right. Or trust, trust <laughs> fiat, right. Do you yeah. trust us dollars and trust your bank? When you really start to think about this, it's not so far fetched to say BlockFi is a good service you know, it's, it may not meet everyone's needs, but it's a good service. And, you know, I love the service offerings. As a bank, you can deposit crypto and they continue to expand the type of crypto they have. You can earn interest on those deposits. You can leverage those deposits and get loans. Uh, and they have uh, ways for you to exchange crypto inside uh, that bank, which is, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, they have some protections involved. You know, they're constantly evolving. They've had some issues recently, uh, but Zach and Flory are doing a great job and the whole team at BlockFi. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. I had Zach on the show as well. And uh, you know, they're, uh, and I'm very friendly with those guys, but like their security breach luckily was 
an informational breach that, you know, obviously that nobody's funds were ever uh, at risk, which is, which is good. And it doesn't feel good. You know, I, I, no. I, I wanted to have Zach on going parabolic and, and it, because I, I want to explore this in real time with him so people can not feel like they're being bullshitted. So right. I'll do this. I'll do it with you. I haven't done it with Zach yet, but I want to, yeah. you know, cause it affected me. Let me tell you how. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cause <laughs> people may not know that. Like they're saying, Oh, Jason, you know, 40% or some percentages of people's PI personal information was lost through a SIM port attack on an employee at BlockFi. What does that mean? You know, BlockFi minimized it. They, you know, they said, this is what happened. I appreciate the transparency, but None, nobody's mm, like real information uh, got turned over and the, the likelihood of some action happening on it to you is low. And let me tell you, if that happened in my business and medicine, if I lost your protected healthcare information in that way, it would have been millions and millions of dollars of fines. I would have had to pay for like LifeLock for every one of the people affected to make sure I protect your credit and protect all these things. Because really what was lost was my account information, my home address, um, you know, uh, a lot of things I don't necessarily want on the dark web. If it right. ever gets there, it doesn't right. feel good. It doesn't feel good. Well, have you ever been personally? I was SIM swapped, which was like the most miserable experience. Actually, you uh, reached out to me with uh, quick advice when I was, when I was SIM swapped. And uh, given like I was well protected, so they didn't get anything in that regard, but like, that means they have every single piece of personal information were able to pretend to be me, you know, unless they obviously had someone paid off at the, at the phone company, but it really is the worst feeling in the world. It's funny. And so I, I switched um, my phone service to a company that's like a concierge that basically protects your SIM, uh, which is called Afani. And I introduced him to Zach the minute that it had happened and they had been interfacing since because it's crazy. Like BlockFi was secure. It was one of their employees who got, SIM swap. So you don't realize how many ways your information is out there and how many different ways someone can attack any company. Right. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately I've, I've been SIM swapped eight times. I think I mean, it's eight times dude, total. My buddy. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was, it was dreadful. And it always would happen when I was overseas and imagine being overseas and not having your phone, not having your email, like every, like everything is malfunctioning and you can't get in touch with people. It's, it's a dreadful experience. And, you know, I've been through fire uh, with it, you know, and um, OPSEC for me is important. People think I'm out here YOLOing and posting like my transactions and stuff. Part of it is, um, is exploratory. Um, I'm constantly trying to find better security and you have to take this seriously. If you're using your telephone to authenticate stuff, it's, oh it's an attack vector that's just, you shouldn't tolerate it. Don't be a part of the 7.1 million Bitcoiners in the United States who have Bitcoin and a retirement account, but don't have Bitcoin in their retirement account. Seriously, you can hold Bitcoin in your retirement account and not just GBTC. How can you do this? Through a self-directed choice IRA by Kingdom Trust. The first 1,000 users to open a Choice IRA will receive $62.50 in free Bitcoin. Visit retirewithchoice.com slash wolf. That's R-E-T-I-R-E-W-I-T-H-C-H-O-I-C-E dot C-O-M slash W-O-L-F. 
Podcast listeners receive extra points to move up the wait list and get their choice IRA first. Do it right now. It's time to take control of your financial future and free yourself from the restrictions of classic retirement accounts. Are you sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto, and it's 100% commission free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 30 top crypto assets, and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank account so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they're offering 5% interest on Bitcoin and 6% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 6%. And there are no limits or lockups, which means your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play Store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. That's investvoyager.com, promo code SCOTT25 for $25 in free Bitcoin and start trading today. So you've been sim swapped eight times, but you still, with your name and face on the internet like me. So, I mean, I guess that speaks to how important you think this space is and that it's worth the risk to be out there and really preaching about the importance of Bitcoin because we know that we're targets. I mean, we're not farm animals with uh, avatars. Yeah, I was talking to Jameson about this yesterday. Like we both had a very similar experience and it, it was beyond just sim porting. It was threats of kidnapping, you know, yeah. I mean, really hardcore stuff, guns, personal security, FBI. I'm all over this, man. Like I can text the FBI right now and, and put them on different things that are going on or problems that I'm facing. Um, it totally sucked. What Jameson did, he anonymized his whole life and, yeah, he and went sold, off grid. sold his house and went off grid. I don't want to live like that. Exactly. And, and I had, I had a, a, an experience that kind of, hardened me to this world before I got into crypto. So from 2010 to 2013, I was moonlighting um, as the medical examiner of Cumberland County. So as the medical examiner, I was, I was doing the, uh, the uh, autopsies out of the office of the chief medical examiner in Chapel Hill, uh, all the external investigations of death, murder, suicide, et cetera. And then I'd have to testify as to how the people died, what, what happened. And a lot of the evidence I was providing would lock up really bad people who had done bad right. things. So right. I had like every asshole on the planet like coming at me. So living, living with, um, uh, with security video cameras and stuff, it wasn't something I, I was foreign to. I don't like it. And I'd much rather not have every asshole on the planet trying to attack me all the time. But I don't know what else to do. Yeah, I mean, then then they win, right? If you hide and you, I mean, I, I understand why Jameson notoriously sort of did that. And actually, like, I think what he did is a good lesson for people who want to take lesser steps since it's kind of laid out there how he did it. But like, you could do part of it, you know, and take certain uh, precautions without uh, having to go completely off grid and hide. But uh, yeah, man, it's the worst feeling in the world. To, uh, you know, I was talking to, I don't know if you've ever spoken to Bitcoin Tina. Uh-uh. You, you've got to interview Tina. Bitcoin right. Tina is, is, is really, really smart. But one of the things that I explored with Bitcoin Tina, which, I, which I'd love to get your thoughts on, if Bitcoin does what we think it's going to do, 
and Bitcoin becomes, let's, and I don't know if you believe this, but what if Bitcoin right. becomes reserve currency, reserve right. currency, yeah. it is the money of the world. And you have an extraordinary amount of it as an individual, like an extraordinary right, right. amount of it right. as an individual. And that could be 10 Bitcoin. Because at Tina that point, thinks, right at that point, wait, an extraordinary amount, maybe not so right, extraordinary, cause, but yeah, because right. Tina thinks Bitcoin, one Bitcoin's gonna be worth fifty million dollars. I think he says that forty-eight seconds into my interview. Right, at which point I mean, you're talking about having a half billion dollars if you've got as, to, right, right. As a as a twenty-five-year-old jerk off, you have no right. capacity, you have no plan, but you are you're worth what? Yeah, give me a break. Imagine the pressure, solicitation, and danger that you could be in. You'd be, I mean, you would, yeah, it, it, it could, could be fully could be, Mad Max, but uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you're talking about like private army level of security required at that point. I, I don't know about, like, I don't like to make outrageous predictions about price, um, but if the scenario plays where there's hyperinflation, if dollars become less and Bitcoin becomes more, then you have a lot of pissed off people and a lot of rich people who were not rich before. It's basically a switching of roles, as you said, and at that point, you've got real, real problems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing to explore. So um, again, I, I posted today, Berkshire Hathaway Class A stock is like 250 some odd thousand dollars a share. Why right. is it so hard to, to believe that one Bitcoin could be worth $250,000 of Bitcoin? Especially when all you're buying with uh, Warren Buffett right now is a big pile of cash. A big pile of cash <laughs> and, a bunch, and a bunch of, of inflation, like stocks yeah. that have been inflated and propped up. And I mean, think, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting thing to explore. And, I, I, you know, I don't want to keep throwing these crazy price targets out. Yeah, but like, <laughs> yeah, like I, I love some of the work Plan B has done and I love the stock to flow models. And um, I don't think it's too hard to conceptualize or conceive upon that Bitcoin could be worth $288,000 by 2024. I just, it's not too hard to conceive upon. So where's that number come from? I know you throw out 288 a lot. It's just going after the uh, market share of gold. Oh, so it's it's arrived at basically reaching its full digital gold potential. And that's that's not even, and I don't even think that gets the full kind of um, market cap of gold. Like, I think it'd be more like $400,000. Right. So per Bitcoin. So it's like, I don't think it's crazy. I I don't think so. I'm not going to plan my life around it, unfortunately. I wish I could, but I, I don't think it's crazy. Right. But do you ever play out these numbers in your head like you of think course. about it, right the amount of bitcoin you hold and if this stuff continues to do that because i i've lived it i mean i had bitcoin at 1500 bucks and that's that bitcoin went to like 19 yeah. yeah it went to 20 yeah. that was like an amazing expansion and i remember like calling my buddies like are you watching this this is crazy it's like what is going on um Look, I think that's going to happen again. Yeah, and if you multiply that by 10 to the numbers you're talking about, it's it's pretty insane. And yeah, I mean, I think you need to plan for the possibility because as you said, there's a lot of things in your life you're going to have to bring to that scale. Yep, and, and I'm, you, I'm expecting it. 
So I'm talking about it. That's why I'm saying- You don't saying, want that like, in a, you know, if it's $288,000 of Bitcoin, maybe that like ledger that's kind of casually sitting on your desk is not going to like- Where's that seed phrase? Right. How, how, do I, how do I do this? How do I, how do I back the, that? The, the level of security of being your own bank when your own bank is worth tens of millions of dollars is, is really pretty a uh, mind-boggling and uncomfortable thing to consider. Yeah, I mean, you should be pressure testing who, who has your backup keys. Right. Are they in a bank, a safety deposit box, a friend? That friend may not be a great friend once this thing is worth what <laughs> yeah. you think it is. So that, that's what I'm saying. Like, let's, let's start the discussion now. You know, if you fail the plan, you plan to fail. Like, like, let's do it now. And then when this thing starts running, your pulse is, you know, quickened but you don't have to worry about anything because it's planned. Right. Let's Let's do it. No emotional decisions. So you and and it's interesting. You've been doing this for five or six years. Like you're, you've been in this space, you're OG level for sure, but you're now constantly talking about finally really taking the red pill. I mean, it feels to me listening to you, like this has been, I don't know. You can tell me if I don't know if it's COVID and the shit show that's the stock market and the infinite money printing, the things that I think are really like showing cracks in the foundation, even to your average Joe. Like I think your average person now is like, this is ridiculous. Who didn't understand anything before? I don't know if it's that or if it's just the point where Bitcoin is at. Like, why have you finally, why are you finally going so deep down the rabbit hole, taking the red pill? Yeah, it's such, it's such a great question. And it is absolutely due to COVID, the economic devastation that we have have seen, the shuttering of jobs and, and businesses, the amount of unemployment that we've had, the stocks only go up phenomenon, you know, uh, Davey Dave, Day Trader. Dave, yeah, <laughs> Dave Portnoy, you know, bodying suits. Um, all of this stuff led me to say, I don't know enough about economics, not to the level that I need to. And I need to start talking to, reading, and doing everything I can to understand like what is money. Because I thought it was something totally different than what it is. I've been someone who would say, inflation is a good thing, because rich guys like me, our hard assets get better in an inflationary environment, you know? Right. Uh, what a dumb thing to think. What a dumb <laughs> thing to say. How tone deaf is that? What does inflation do to society? And, and it just destroys people. It destroys value. Um, and it's a tool. It's just a game that our governments use. Why have I been paying taxes at all? Like why the stress that I'm under? I'm under a lot of stress. I have to pay taxes every month on everything and every, you know, every, every service, every product I buy. Why am I having to do that if the government can just whip up a bunch of money and just give it away? Right. Why not just whip up the money and uh, get rid of taxes? You can print it endlessly, right? So, uh, and it's funny because people criticize everyone for saying, well, I'm not going to pay my rent. I'm not going to pay my mortgage, which by the way, I think is irresponsible. Of course, like if you have a responsibility, uh, a financial responsibility, you, you take care of it. But like, you can't blame people for the mentality of like, why do I have to pay my debts if the government can't handle their debts? If they can print money endlessly, why do they need mine? You know, I mean, it's not a far jump to, and also like corporate socialism, like they're going to, they're barely bailing out me and they're bailing out every zombie comp company, but you can't blame people for 
you know, not wanting to pay their debts at this point. Yep. And, and the real red pill moment for me was, was this, it was like, um, money should be enough, right? Money should be enough. I've traded my life. I've worked my ass off as a 16 year old. I dreamed of being a physician. I became a PA. I rolled the dice. I built a business. I exited for more money than I could ever dream. My dad is from Manchester. He's a butcher. My mother is Sicilian. She's a hairdresser. Like we could barely pay for me to go to like a shitty third tier college just because I wanted to be a soccer player, you know, and now I'm, I have an enormous amount of money that should be enough. I should be able to live the rest of my life and not have to be a professional trader and put all that money at risk in the stock market in some kind of cockamamie scheme that some suit, you know, has planned for me, but you have to do something with money with us dollars because of inflation. You, you got to, you've got to risk it. And that's not right. Money should be enough. Right, money you have to get be out enough. there and somehow beat the money. <laughs> Bitcoin, Bitcoin. This is the red, pill moment for me. Bitcoin is enough. Bitcoin is enough. The deflationary aspects of it, all of the things that sound like, like a bunch of like spin and marketing uh, are not. So when you see like Max Kaiser acting like a complete maniac, I love it. And when you see Bitcoin Tina being bigger than a permable, I love it because they've been red pilled. And I know like, uh, these folks who see me talking about DeFi or, or saying like rune, I whisper voice rune is up. I'm just exploring around the periphery of different technologies or different products or services that may be interesting, but everything I have, all the real concentrated investment is in Bitcoin because I think it's good money. It is. And, uh, it's funny cause I, I was, I mean, I think this year has been my red pill moment as well to a large degree. I was always sort of, you know, I backed into the space as a trader. So it was always about like, how much money can I make trading this stuff? Right. It wasn't really, there was no, and then you kind of go down the rabbit hole and you start to feel it and you start to actually see the use case and understand what it is that you're actually trading. But I mean, I really think that this is the time for it to shine. I mean, this is, you know, if every maximalist in history has uh, gone down the rabbit hole and seen this hyperinflation coming and, and the dollar, you know, I always used to joke like, I can't pay my kids private school tuition in Bitcoin. So what use is it? But that will happen. And the question is, I guess I'm asking you, like you say Bitcoin is enough, but we still need it to be accepted, right? You need to be able to use it. Or are you saying that you just exit as much as you need to at any given time to pay those bills and hoard the rest? Yeah, like I, I, I'm not even looking for another use case of Bitcoin. It's use cases to hold it. Right. It, it's infinitely divisible. And as it consumes different asset classes and, and continues to grow in value, you, you can split it and you'll be able to do different things with it. But its use case is exactly hold it. Um, don't, I'm not looking to transact it. I don't want to sell my Bitcoin. I don't want anything. I'm not trying to trade it. Um, right. it the, the use case is. Right. I guess there's just people 
It, you're right. But the use case obviously is if there's a person who only has a thousand dollars to their name and is living in some foreign country and needs to pay their bills, I guess keep as much of it as you can and only sell it when you need to get those things that, that you desire or that you need to live. If, if that's a, that's a fair point. Again, I, yeah. I'm saying if you have the ability oh, to buy and hold it, yeah. I yeah. would take some position and buy and hold it. Yeah. Even decimal points, sats. But listen, the funny thing is, is that like, that's not a foreign concept. It seems nuts when you're talking about Bitcoin, but generational wealth has been accumulated for all time by people buying stocks and holding them. Well, that's what stock. you do. How about just saving money? Yeah, you just get yeah, money in work. there and you don't touch it. The only thing you have to do is not touch your money, not touch your investments. Yeah. That's the thing it people can't do, but that's all there is. Right. I don't know why people struggle with this. Like I'm saying to you, buy Bitcoin and just hold it. It's good money. If I was saying to you, don't spend all your money, just hold it. That would be an investment strategy. Like, don't spend yeah. all your money. It seems more palatable to say that, but then you say, well, you're taking money, and I think bad money, inflationary money, like just monopoly money. Who knows what this stuff is anymore? They send it to you for free. They just change decimal points on a ledger and, and, and do all kinds of crazy yeah. stuff with it. Who knows what it is? I'm saying take that stuff and buy good money and just hold it as much as you can. Yeah. I mean, it makes complete sense. So they're sending out $1,200 stimulus checks, you know, that people's kids are going to pay $12,000 back for. Yeah. So what do you think the end game really is? I mean, obviously we all have this like Venezuela, Lebanon, Argentina, money in the streets in your suitcase, you know, uh, Germany pre-World War II vision of what it could be, but those weren't world reserve currencies like the dollar. I mean, what do you think the end game is of all this money printing? Do you think that that's where it's headed? Yeah, you know, you, you brought up the exact point. The reason we get to play around the way we do is, I think, because of World War II. And, yeah. uh, you know, we, we, we are the world's reserve currency. And every oil transaction in the world is backed by the U.S. dollar. Totally. And all the, banks, all the banks that do those transactions have to hold U.S. dollars to do those transactions. And what the U.S. has done, and I, I, it's probably through design and through, you know, economic warfare, there's not a lot of U.S. dollars out there. So they kind of choked off supply. So they're able to run the money printer right, right. now. And it's scaring yeah. the shit out of everyone. But the world wants those dollars. It's consuming them. And I don't know how many times we can multiply the amount of currency, U.S. dollars that are out there. I know that when Ben Bernanke did this in 2010, they quintupled the money supply and it did nothing. There was... And I, yeah, I'm going to overgeneralize this. I'm going to say we didn't really see inflation, but there was inflation in stocks and inflation in all kinds right. of places. But we didn't see like uh, you didn't see the standard kind of inflation that you see in these countries where it's like suitcases of money to buy a right. loaf of bread. That's right. right. And and it probably it probably will do the same thing. We're going to see inflation around the periphery. Um, you're going to lose buying power, no doubt, no yeah, doubt. Of course. Um, when we lose the status as the world's uh, reserve currency, that's when this stuff gets really real. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, the U.S. still has a lot of might. We still have a very strong military. We still have uh, the positions that we have. We have a president that will do whatever he has to do to keep that stock market rolling. Like that, that's what's like, in my opinion, going on right now. Like, right. Which is funny because that actually means devaluing the dollar. 
that's what that's what's happening right now. Like if I could, if I was at the White House or wherever President Trump is right now, he's saying, yeah. "Dude, I don't care Stop. what you have to do. Stocks go up." Because there's chaos all around. I'm going to have to stand on stage with whoever I'm competing against, and I'm going to tell you all, you have never seen economic prosperity like you've seen during my time in office. You want that to continue? I'm your guy. All the rest of this stuff, I, I don't know about coronavirus. I don't know why it happened. I'm doing the best I can. But look at your portfolios. And at yeah. the end of the day, that will resonate with people. The beautiful 401ks. It'll resonate with rich people. But, uh, it, but I mean, that means resonate with people because, but the, it, it's, it's ironic because, you know, the, the economy and the stock market are so incredibly disjointed, especially now, now more than ever. I mean, I think maybe 50% of Americans even have exposure to stock roughly, but even most of those, it's like in a 401k, they can't touch and that doesn't help them pay their rent this month yeah. if they have no job. Right. So, I mean, it's insanity. Yeah, it's, it's hard. To, it's hard to even. It's hard to even believe the statistics that are coming out now. Like we we got into this like fake news and all this stuff going on. Now I don't Dude, even. The know. job numbers are such horseshit. I don't right, even right. understand. Is- Every Thursday, it's like we've lost two million jobs. We've lost one and a half million. Then the monthly, it's like up four million jobs. I'm like, dude, I, I could figure that out in kindergarten that this is for, that this is horseshit. You know what it's I mean? It's wild. And- so I don't even know what's going on. I'm trying to just figure it out. I'm sharing everything that I'm learning with, uh, with everyone around me. And, um, you know, again, that, that's why Bitcoin feels so good. Uh, and I'm a guy who has assets. Like I, I buy property, I buy different stuff. I, you know, I even test out Peter Schiff's uh, business and bought a bunch of gold and silver just to see it. You know, I'm not a big gold and silver guy. I mean, Pomp used to joke but with why me. Not have some? Yeah. But I, I actually don't know if it's, very valuable. And I just called my uncle Joe recently and told him, Hey, stop buying gold, man. Cause he, he loves buying gold. And we talk about that stuff in it. I'm Boomers. just like, just buy Bitcoin. Boomers love, yeah. gold. love gold. But it's so funny. They, that, that means they should understand why we love Bitcoin so much. <laughs> there's a, there's a little tech hurdle, but I, I tweeted this recently. Let me, you want to try this one on. I really feel unfortunate. I think it's unfortunate for millennials because they've been they've been put in a bad position financially. And I think boomers and Gen Xers are going to own the majority of Bitcoin and the millennials should have, but they're going to miss the opportunity. I agree because you still need money to, to, to get, unless you, unless you've dedicated your life to working some sort of service where you get paid in Bitcoin or I'm you're talking you about know, the majority, the big but, war chests of Bitcoin will be controlled by boomers and Gen Xers. Yeah. I think that that's, that's sad, but pretty true. It's it's heartbreaking actually. You know, this is, this is, um, well, unless there's, and I I don't know the statistic offhand, but as boomers start to die and transfer their wealth uh, to the younger generations, maybe they'll plow some of that money into Bitcoin, which, which could save some of them. But it's a sad thing to, uh, to think about because I was in the same boat in 1994 when the internet was born, I was just a broke college kid sitting in my dorm room. Same, I was like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm like, this is going to be big. I want to drop out of school and like put all I got into this. And people are like, no, idiot. This is goofy. AOL. Like, you think this is going to be like something? Uh, I don't even know what the internet's for. Um, but I didn't, have no, I didn't have any money. So maybe a lot of millennials are just sitting by saying the same thing. Like, Bitcoin, I get it, but I don't have any money to buy it. Yeah, it's like yeah, who who cares if the idea is great if uh, you're trying to buy dinner? Yep, 
Yep. Uh, and uh, millennials have really, I mean, you know, they get a bad rap for being like lazy and this and that, but they've just gotten the shit end of the stick at every single turn. I mean, graduating, you know, whether it's college or grad school during a financial crisis, depending on what level they are, September 11th, like, I mean, there's just never been, a, and, and, you know, they've been dealing with this inflation to some degree their entire lives. Student debt, I mean, there's almost impossible for a millennial to have, you know, achieved financial independence or success, I would say at this point. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm not one who subscribes to the fact or the opinion that millennials are lazy. I agree with you that they've been just uh, raised or had to experience like economic devastation throughout their transformative years, including watching their parents and them lose their homes. I mean, it's been crazy. Um, and and it, it's not hard for me to to understand why they may not want to buy homes, why they'd rather rent. And, you know, yeah. uh, they're, they're the most educated group in history. You know, I wish I had a statistic to back that statement up, but I think it's true. Like, oh, I mean, we, we, I got to college and they told me, asked me what my email address was going to be in 1995. And I asked them what an email address was. You know what I mean? Like I had literally did, had never even heard of it. I didn't know what the internet was. You know, now the velocity of information, these kids learn so more than we learned in four years and in four hours. I really believe that, you know, now figuring out what's actually true and what's fake is a whole other challenge. But also like millennials, I mean, if you were graduating college or something in 2008 and you saw, first of all, we talked about not being able to trust your bank. You saw the banks default on all these loans. They were taking all of our money that we deposited and loaning it for complete crap. And to go through that and then see it all happening again, like nobody learned their lesson and they're getting brutalized for it once again. I mean, Bitcoin really does answer that. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a meme, Bitcoin fixes this, but. It, it's so true. And again, at this point, it's taken me five years to arrive at this conclusion that I'm not really looking for the layer two and layer three and layer four over Bitcoin. I'm saying, Bitcoin's fine, just like it is. The construction, the way it's the way it works, it's fine. You've got to own it. You've got to own it. And whatever you have to do to custody it, protect it, put it in a will, put it in a trust, avoid probate, make sure that you have and you know go through the security layers so there's redundancy and you don't lose it. Uh, is smart. It's smart. And then yeah. we'll because we don't know what's going to happen with the with the pol geopolitical environment that we're in today. Who, who knows what that is going to do? Just do this. Take some control of your own life. Just do this. It feels good. It does. It, it really does feel good. Uh, as much stress as it can cause in your life, as you've mentioned before, with the volatility and and more the, the custody. The volatility doesn't even get me at all anymore. Like I I. I don't need the money right now. Like everything I have in it, if it, like you said, if it goes to zero, that'd be terrible. It won't, but, but it's more about, yeah, worrying about somebody coming for it or worrying about what will happen to it if, if I'm gone or something. And that, that really is a very stressful thing, but I think that solutions will evolve uh, that make it more of a part of the conversation as more people are exposed to it. And as institutional and bigger investors are, exposed to it, they're going to need the answers and that's going to trickle down to guys like me. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we will eventually get like dummy proof custody solutions where you're not, you know, having to 
keep paper seed keep phrases and all this other stuff. It, it will be made very simple. Those are interesting things to me, but you've got to go through the process of exploring what Bitcoin is, getting an on-ramp to move fiat into an exchange, purchasing Bitcoin, moving it off of an exchange into some place that feels comfortable to you, and then putting in security so people can't take it from you in its terminal destination, wherever that is. If it's on, you know, if it's being custodied by BlockFi or Coinbase or Gemini or what have you, you've got to protect it there. And then you have to go the next level, which we've explored. You know, how do you recover the Bitcoin in the event of some catastrophic thing happening to you? Do you have a will? Do you have a trust, et cetera? I want you all to think about those things. Um, I know that the people who listen uh, to some of the things that I'm doing are in the age range of about 25 to 55. Right. I'm, cha I'm challenging you to not be YOLOing right now yeah. with one or two Bitcoin. There are only 21 million. Don't be stupid. If this thing get to, got to $50 million, you, you have one half of my net worth and you bought one Bitcoin. Right. I worked 15 years building fucking companies and dealing with enormous loads, mountains of bullshit to have that money. Dude, Protected. everyone else, Don't everyone else I have, like half the people I have on this podcast are like 27 years old and they're talking to me about like every altcoin that they were an early investor in pre-ICO and it, honestly, man, they're all brilliant dudes and those are the millennials who got it, but it pisses me off because I'm like, is it a long slog like to, you know, to keep it together with major down moments and some of these people really hit it, you know, really hard the first time. Yep. And, <laughs> and good for them. Yeah, it's and awesome. Good, good for them. You know, yeah, it's we, awesome. We, we didn't put any real money in ICOs during that time. I, I just didn't, I didn't understand it. It seemed like um, I, I, I couldn't understand making an investment in a company, but not receiving equity. It, it just, it was also really Americans. Slow. Americans largely were locked out anyways, yeah. which is a whole other conversation, whether that's right or wrong, accreditation and all that. But, you know, so yeah, I, I was not like, uh, I mean, I was trading the stuff when it hit exchanges and stuff, but I was not a big ICO dude. I didn't even, as you said, I didn't even get the tag. It was like, VPN to this thing and then send money to a strange address and hope yeah. that something comes back. Not within my uh, risk management uh, profile at the time, but probably would have gotten a hell of a lot richer if it, if it had been, if I had chosen the right ones. So uh, where should everybody follow you after this? Where can they keep up with you? Uh, yeah. No, look, first of all, I appreciate uh, this first time we've uh, ever spoken and uh, yeah. enjoyed it very much. It's always fun <laughs> to just too. have a conversation about uh, things that are interesting. So really yeah, cool. Man, I love it. Well, we'll do it again. <laughs> yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at uh, J Williams FSTMED. And then uh, come check me out on, um, on YouTube at Going Parabolic. It's a show I do every day. Sometimes I do rants. Every do some, day. Uh, yeah, every day. Uh, um, we're, uh, we're having a good time there. But like I said, I'm just trying to share what I'm learning, doing some mentorship, uh, bringing on people that I think are underrepresented in the space uh, who are absolute titans. And, uh, you know, let's go. So hey, when you were growing up as a Jason Williams in the nineties, did everybody call you white chocolate? Oh yeah. Cause like, cause man, we, you know, I, I'm a Gator fan. I grew up in Gainesville. So like Baller. that was, he was the greatest Jason Williams of all time. You're, you're rivaling it now. Cause I remember mm -hmm. when he got like, he got kicked off the Gators for smoking weed and it was like yeah. the most devastating moment in the history of, mm -hmm. of Gainesville. But man, that dude was, 
Fire. Yeah, they call me Black Milk, White Chocolate. <laughs> I, got, I got all the nicknames. I mean, you were at the exact right age. I'm to, telling like, you, that's to me. Ride. That's, that's, that's it. amazing. There's been a lot of Jason Williams, but I'm the crypto finance one. I did, right, see you, I did see you dunking on that like seven, oh, yeah. seven, seven foot, foot basket foot. the other day. Oh, hey, don't even try me on a seven foot basket. You're going to get dunked on. It was dirty though. I mean, yeah, that was dirty. I got them all, so. man. Windmill, 360. Oh, it's on. What happens if we go up to 10? <laughs> I, I'm shooting I that jumper. slap that net, yeah, boy. I know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot the jumper. I'm going to shoot the jumper. I'll stay outside. That my, yeah, that was always my game. It was like the bad knees and ankles. I just, just throw it to me on the outside. I'm not guarding anybody, and I'm not trying to get in there. But I, I, I can dunk a tennis ball. Okay. I'll take that. This is good. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This is definitely an awesome chat. Like you said, it's good to just shoot the shit. So, yep. uh, it was My great. And ha have a good one. We'll speak yeah, soon. Have a good fourth. You too. All right. Let's go. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at Scott Melker to continue the conversation. See you next week.